0: Welcome to the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast. I'm Travis Pauly, and here we have one goal, learn to love like Jesus. This episode, Wes sits down with guest Caleb Cochran to discuss the topic of sexual immorality. I hope you enjoy this conversation. Well, welcome back to the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast. I'm joined today by my friend Caleb Cochran. Thank you so much for being with us today, brother.
1: Absolutely. Thank you for having me on.
0: I am, I'm, I'm excited, a little nervous to talk about today's topic. It's, uh, it's a sensitive topic. And in fact, I, I try to say anytime we talk about sexuality on the podcast that if you're listening with your kids, maybe this would be a good one to skip for now and come back later and, and maybe not listen with the, with kiddos or anybody that, that might be sensitive to these these topics because we are going to talk about sexuality. I'm going to read the, the question that was sent in from one of our listeners, Brendan, and then we'll jump into the discussion of the question. Brendan asked, the Bible references sexual immorality pretty often, but what does that mean exactly? I feel like that's a vague term and would have a very difficult time explaining it to someone wanting to pursue Christ. And I I love the way Brendan asked this question, uh, because number one, it's asking for a definition of sexual immorality, but then also, as we talk about that with someone who desires to follow Jesus, what, what would that, that look like? So I want to talk about all of those things and the breadth of this question. So Caleb, let me just um, to throw that to you, and let's start, I think, with the Old Testament, with the Law of Moses, and, and talk about how would we define sexual immorality? Uh, this question is specifically about sexual immorality, but how would we define sexual morality and sexual ethics according to the Law of Moses?
1: I would say that, uh, you, you know, you, there are several passages in the Old Testament that uh, address this issue by command of some specifics. But I would say that um, w- w- the place to start would actually be Genesis chapter 2, uh, where you have the creation of Adam, you have the creation of Eve, and you have uh, really the, the whole setup of what marriage is to be and how sex is, is within that context. And, and so you have the idea of, of leaving father and mother, being joined to a wife, and becoming one flesh. And that one flesh idea certainly, while it may not be limited to the sexual act, it certainly includes the sexual act. That's a big part of what is being talked about there. That's the same language that 1 Corinthians 6 will later use to talk about the sexual act. So there is a joining of two into one. There is a, a unifying aspect uh, that is there uh, of the sexual act, and uh, that, that is the model uh, that we have in the entire Old Testament. I think it's set up right there in Genesis 2 of what it is to be. And it's within that context of a covenant, of a committed relationship, of what uh, what sex is supposed to be. Otherwise, sex would be a consumer good. It would be something that we're just looking to consume rather than something that is shared in a lifelong commitment. So that's certainly the model that you see in Genesis 2. So I'd say that that is the picture of what sexual immorality is. Uh, that, that is your the, the place to start with sexual ethics in the Bible. Uh, and I would say what you see play out in the rest of Genesis, before you even get into the specifics of, of places that, like in Leviticus 18 and Leviticus 20, that are going to address more the specifics of this is what you do not do specifically. Uh, this is what constitutes sexual immorality you already see examples play out in the, the rest of the book of Genesis even uh, of deviations from the Genesis 2 model. When, when you remove sex from the Genesis 2 model of one man, one woman in a lifelong committed relationship, then it's a disaster every time. And Genesis, that's a strong message in Genesis. Uh, so the first way that you, you see that go astray, I mean, the very first thing is polygamy that's brought in in Genesis chapter 4, and I, I know we could do a whole podcast just on that, uh, but uh, it, while it's not explicitly condemned in the Mosaic law, uh, it certainly, every time you see it practiced, it ends up being a disaster. Uh, but you also see in Genesis, you see incest. I mean, you, you've got something going on uh, with with um, in the family of Noah in Genesis 9. You've got something going on with Lot and his daughters. You see an ancestral sexual intercourse that happens uh, in uh, Genesis 19. You see homosexuality. Uh, So you see an exchange instead of the male-female pairing. You uh, at least see an example of at least a desire for male-to-male relationship in in Sodom in Genesis 19. Uh, So you you see that in Genesis. Uh, So you see um, uh, that that there were some same-sex acts that were going on in that in that city it's certainly not the only thing going on in Sodom but that that's part of it it's a uh, a removal of sex from the context of male female committed lifelong relationships uh, you you also see you see rape in in the book of genesis uh, you see uh, sex without consent uh, and i'm thinking specifically of of dinah and how that's that's forced upon her in genesis 34 i believe is where that is. And you you see prostitution, even. Uh, you see that that sex becomes something that is very much becomes a consumer good uh, in exchange for money or other goods. You see that with the Judah and Tamar story in Genesis 38. Uh, so those are just some of the examples that I see, and I know there's several others, of just specific ways that you see deviations from. The Genesis two model, and, and you can see it's a disaster every time. There are consequences every every one of those stories. Not only is there sexual sin that's involved, but it, it has a ripple effect into all kinds of other ways that 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 uh, people are affected and their their lives are hurt uh, when we remove sex from its original context. Uh, so I would say when you get to a text like Leviticus eighteen or Leviticus twenty, and you see more of these specifics of what you don't do. That's really just going along with the principle that's already been there in Genesis 2.
0: That's such a great point, and I think that really it goes well with what the way that, that Jesus dealt with sexual ethics, the way that Paul dealt with sexual ethics. So many times when Jesus or Paul were talking about sexuality or even gender roles, the whole idea that they would They would go back to the creation account and draw from that um, shows that that's how Jesus and the apostles used, used the creation account as... Teaching. Uh, in fact, a couple weeks ago, we were talking about the Torah, the, the law, and, and we tend to have a certain way of thinking about law as being rules and regulations, and that's certainly a part of it. As you, you pointed out, when you get into Leviticus, uh, even parts of Deuteronomy are rules and regulations. They are, um, here's what you do if this happens, here's what you do if this crime is committed, If here's what you do if, if someone does this thing. And so you have more of this legislation, but most of the Torah, most of the law is actually narrative. And it's all written, both the rules and regulations and the narrative itself, the story is written to train Israel to be wise, to be understanding, to know about God and humanity and how exactly we're supposed to live as humans in the world. And and I think that we have to read the creation account with that in mind. In fact, I think that's how the creation account itself is, is written out, because even in Genesis 2, going back to that, after God creates the man and the woman, and they they become one flesh, then you have that verses 24 and 25, therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. There is a conclusion drawn from the story itself. And then to your point about as you continue through the story of Israel, I think sometimes people make a mistake and and read all of these stories as if we should follow all of these examples. Many of the stories of Genesis are given so that you don't follow their example. Don't do this. Don't do that. It's supposed to train you to be wise and understanding, to understand that when you marry— uh, for example the the Levitical uh, regulations about sexual immorality included not taking two rival wives that are sisters and so Leviticus specifically says don't do this but then you see that played out in Genesis when this happens when a man marries two women especially that are sisters and their rivals are all of the problems that this creates. And so there is all of this disharmony, disunity, brokenness, toxicity that comes from ignoring the lesson that should have been learned from the very beginning about one man and one woman together becoming lifelong covenant partners and working together to reflect God's image into the world as as one flesh. Uh, But when you ignore that, and you, I love the way you said, treat sexuality as a consumer good, where it's something that you're taking rather than something that you're sharing, you see all of the consequences. And I think you're exactly right. You see this spelled out through the book of Genesis.
1: Yes. And I would say it's also, you know, any type of sexual misconduct, immorality, um, whatever word we want to use there, it separates the means from the end. And what I mean by that, the end of the end of sex is for marriage. Uh, it, it is not that marriage is for sex; sex is a part of marriage. But the end of sex is for marriage. It, it is it, it is a physical, it's a bodily means of sealing a bond, a, a covenant that is supposed to to go to every other aspect of the relationship. Uh, but it is the bodily expression of that. It's a very important one for, for married people. Uh, so when you remove sex from marriage, and this is touching, this is getting into the New Testament stuff a, a little bit. We'll get there uh, in a moment, I'm sure. But uh, you know, First Corinthians 6, verse 18 is going to say, it's a sin against your own body because you, you're taking something that was meant to be, uh, pre- re- was meant to, um, further what marriage is supposed to be, and you're, you are sinning against the very nature of, of what that bodily expression is all about. So it's a sin against your own body uh, whenever you do that. So, uh, yes, uh, the, the, and it all goes back to Genesis 2, and what Jesus does. Yeah, Jesus takes the affirmation from Genesis 1, the guy created the male and female, and he takes Genesis 2, for this reason, a man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And he says, that, that's your sexual ethic. You know, what one, one man, one woman, four life in a committed relationship. And we're, we're there's all kinds of, as, as it plays out in Genesis and really the rest of the Old Testament, uh, just the, the ripple effect, the ramifications of those who, who take uh, sex from that context, they, they do tremendous harm uh, to themselves and to other people.
0: Yeah, and, and I, I think that that's exactly right, and and I think that if we if we get back to that picture of what's going on with humanity in the garden and and with creation, that humanity is is not whole until there's two halves that that are separated to some degree and then come back together in a unified whole, and then as as the offspring from that union go out from that union to another union, and, and they begin to both multiply and unify uh, with one another, it's a beautiful picture of how humanity works and, and how the offspring come from a, from a union— to another union, and and I think that it's interesting as you get into Leviticus, and if anybody is wondering where these, you've already pointed that out, Caleb. That Leviticus chapter eighteen and chapter twenty really spell out sexual immorality in very detailed terms. But I don't even know that that's supposed to be an exhaustive list, <laughs> even though it's pretty exhaustive. Like, uh, don't don't have relations with your aunt. Don't have relations with your long list of incestuous relationships. And I think again that points back to creation, that you come away from the union with your family, and you go and you're unified with, with someone else. And there is unity and multiplication as the offspring go away from the original family to a new family and create a new family. And the the families of the world are united as they come together in this, this beautiful covenant relationship. And so Leviticus spells out you, you don't have these sexual relationships within your family. You don't have them with animals. You don't have them with those of your same gender. Um, and so these specific acts of sexual immorality are spelled out. But I think the positive side of it, as you said, can— all points back to the creation account. And, and it's really, it's very beautiful what we see in the creation account. Uh, but as humanity deviates from that and acts upon their sexual impulses, uh, we see so much brokenness. And I think sometimes one of the mistakes that we make, and we'll, we'll get into this too, I'm sure, later, but we, one of the mistakes that we make is we, we pull certain sexual misconduct, sexual misdeeds and we pull them out and we single them out um, as if they are worse than some other sexual misconduct. Um, and, and I think that's really a mistake. I think that we really have to we have to point out the fact that according to the law, we, we've all we all not only have sexual impulses that are sexually immoral if acted upon uh, but we all probably have in one way or the other, um, we've all fallen short of God's goal for sexual morality, for sexual ethics, for what God designed sex to be. And so we've all fallen short of that in in some way, whereas we tend to wag our finger at, at others that have have missed the goal on that. We, we're all guilty in one way or, or another.
1: We, we are, and we do have a human tendency when we read the Bible to read it as, as about the them uh, rather than yes. about me. Uh, and so whenever we read something about Sodom or what happened with Dinah and her brothers and whatever it is, we need to be reading it of, oh, this is, look how terrible those are. Not reading it that way. I'm not reading it. Look how terrible these people were. But what is what is this saying about me, about my brokenness? Uh, because you, you're absolutely right. Maybe not all of us struggle with same-sex attraction, uh, but maybe not all of us struggle with pedophilia or desire for incest or desire for bestiality or whatever. Uh, but all of us on some level have some brokenness in our, in our sexual practices. Uh, you know, th- that, that is, and, and especially when we get to where Jesus takes this, because Jesus takes this to being, and he uses the word adultery there, um, uh, and not the umbrella term of sexual immorality, but I think the same principle applies to any form of sexual immorality when he takes it in, in Matthew 5 and says, uh, this, is, this is not just something that you commit with your body, this is something you can commit with your eyes and in your heart. And and so and that's really bringing out the intention of what this original passage is as well. You know, This is not just about the bodily manifestation, uh, not just about sexual intercourse uh, being the only way that you can go wrong uh, with your sexuality, uh, but what, what plays out in your mind with your eyes in your heart, uh, can, can be just as wrong.
0: And and to that point, I think that's exactly right. And and even the the term for sexual immorality, as we get into the New Testament, the Greek term is porneia, which is the word from which we get pornography. Um, and and really, pornography um, is is doing exactly what we're talking about. It's objectifying other people, and instead of seeing them as image-bearers of God, and instead of sexuality being part of a covenant relationship to fulfill our calling as human beings to multiply and to unify, um, instead of it being that, it it becomes, as you said, a consumer good, and and our culture is obsessed not only with sexuality but with pornography, pornography both in an expressed way and the pornography, the objectification of of other human beings and sexuality itself in our own hearts and our own minds, where we are. We are acting upon these these broken impulses, these broken passions. Uh, we are acting upon them both in looking at things that are are objectifying, but also in in lusting in our hearts, and, and humanity has always had a problem with this, but the invention of magazines and, and then movies and television and now the internet um, has really amplified that struggle that, that all humanity has uh, with our sexual passions and sexual desires.
1: Yeah, yeah, well, we have more access to, you know, really the form is voy- voyeurism, being able to, uh, you know, be able to look at something, whether it's an image or it's a video uh, of, of something that I was never intended to see it, by God's right. design. It's something that was meant to be privately shared between two people, but, but not shared by bringing others into that, where you bring in third parties. And that's that's what various forms of pornography uh, do. And I would say, you know, we talk about consumerism, and, and not only do we have a consumer driven culture, we also have a very on demand culture of. You know, g- give it, give it to me now. Give it to me in my way that I want, on my terms, in my time frame, a- and that's that distorts. That just adds to the brokenness of, of how we think about sex and how we we act upon our impulses because we do. The access uh, ha- has, you know, it's um, it's scary how accessible things are. I mean, th- there's a lot of wonderful things about access that we have to information, but uh, the very fact that something like pornography that I can access. Uh, I- on my terms, when I want it in my way, and it's very much—it's totally consumerism, and, and it's just consuming it in a way that's um, uh, that I'm not contributing anything, and, and and if I'm trained to not only objectify people, and by the way, objectifying people dehumanizes them, and it makes them less of what they were intended to be uh, as image bearers. You know, it, it reduces them. Uh, to something that's just a, a bodily eye candy for me, or, or wh- whatever it may be. It, w- whenever I do that, uh, and I've trained myself to do that on demand, just to act on my impulses, uh, we, we lose the whole idea of what I'm supposed to be offering to someone uh, in, in a committed relationship. And that, so it, it's, it really just contributes to selfishness and a, a less than human less than God's definition of human view of of people in general. it's it extends beyond just just sexuality to all these other areas where I just really start to to view people as goods and that's very dangerous.
0: Yeah well and and that really makes me think about that relationship between Adam and Eve or between male and female and and the sexuality that is that is supposed to be a part of that. Um, and all of these other things are really sort of shortcuts to the satisfaction that sexuality promises us. And and, and to your point about being on demand and being easily accessible, um, I, married sex... Yeah. And, and sexuality between two people that are very different is difficult. It's challenging. It's supposed to be challenging and difficult because not only are men and women different biologically, they're different in their sexuality. They're different in their emotionality. Um, and, and that's kind of part of the picture is that two people that are the two halves of humanity are coming together. They're being unified. These two that are very different in a lot of different ways are coming together. And if they come together in a way that is selfless, a way that is sharing, a way that is loving, a way that is hospitable, a way that is compassionate, then it can be a very satisfying experience. But because of our fallenness, because of our brokenness, it often doesn't work out that way. And so we look for shortcuts. We look for other ways to satisfy ourselves. And to your point about being selfish, we tend to do that. Humanity tends to find ways to shortcut the process of sexual fulfillment in ways that don't require sacrifice, in ways that don't require selflessness. Uh, but, But God's ways are always ones of selflessness and love for others and sharing ourselves with someone else that is very different. And I think that that can be and should be lived out in the marriage relationship but to one degree or the other we've all fallen short of that goal
1: you're right and and that brokenness that distortion couples struggle with this because they bring that that broken uh, broken sexual practices or or at least the way they've they've trained themselves to think about uh, about sex and that it, it, it is very challenging in a marriage because it's, there's no shortcuts to that. It is something uh, sacrificial. It's something that is serving. It's something that does require a lot of patience and a lot of, you know, as Song of Solomon says, do not awaken love until it pleases. That there's just there, There's, there's got to be some mutual understanding that is there in a relationship, and that's hard work. And that's work that a lot of people don't want to invest in. And so they will go look for shortcuts or they'll, they'll look for gratification outside of that. Uh, so that's that's why sexual immorality can play out in so many different ways and it's something we have to be uh, so careful about
0: yeah and as we sort of transition and we've already touched on this so very much uh, already because it's hard not to talk about both covenants or both time periods at the same time but but what do we say to those who would say well you know all of these rules about sexuality that was part of the 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 law of Moses, but we're not under that law anymore, and what what God really wants now is for us to just be happy and to be satisfied. And so those laws about especially same-sex relationships or, or whatever sort of sexuality that that people find outdated and archaic. You know, that's part of the law of Moses, but that's not part of of the Christian way of living. In fact, I've heard people say things like, well, Jesus never condemned same-sex relationships, or Jesus didn't have anything to say about uh, sex before marriage. And so Christians need to just stop stop with all of the the sex rules the rules about sex and um, and and just realize that's part of the old law and not part of life in Christ that that now we're free to to sort of act on our our desires in a more uh, liberated sort of way so so what do we say to that and what's the Christian uh, sexuality what's the Christian sexual ethic
1: I, I would say a couple things about Jesus first and one is whenever he does talk about even though the question of divorce is what, uh, initiates this discussion in Matthew 19. Jesus's answer covers you know, all that we've been talking about. He goes back to the creational principle again. He affirms from Genesis 1, God made the male and female, and then he puts that together. It's like he's putting together a logical syllogism. You know that that uh, God made the male and female. There's there's one premise. Here's your other premise. A man shall leave his father and mother, cleave to his wife, become one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no men separate. So, so he's putting together, he's, he's drawing upon what is already in place, creational principles here, uh, that this is not God some, doing something entirely different with sexual ethics. No, Jesus is getting back to the heart of what they were meant to be to begin with. And I'd say that's exactly what he does in Matthew 5 as well. Uh, when he says, you've heard that it was said, do not commit adultery. Uh, and he doesn't say, well, I tell you that doesn't matter anymore. No, he he says uh he he if anything and I will I not say he's he's not changing that commandment he is he's sharpening the intent of it you know he, he is he's bringing it to a point like he would sharpen a pencil to be able to bring it to its point okay and then he it pierces all the way to your heart where this is a matter of even the, the thoughts that that go on within you and that that's what he's doing with that so I would say, first off, when people say that Jesus didn't care about sexual practice, I don't think they've read the Gospels closely enough to be able to see that, yes, yes, he does. I mean, Matthew 5 affirms that, and Matthew 19 affirms that, and other places do. I would say also that, you know, when you read Paul's epistles, when you get to 1 Corinthians 6, for example, and it, it talks about some different practices of people who will not inherit the kingdom of God. And some of the same types of things you even see mentioned as works of the flesh in Galatians chapter 5, contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit there. What 1 Corinthians 6 is going to say, and it, it, mentions, it mentions that umbrella term, porneia, which is the, uh, I call it an umbrella term because all the other more specific terms fall under it. Uh, but porneia is just that general term for what goes outside of that Genesis 2 model. Then he mentions a couple more specific things that deal with, with same sex sexual practices within there and adultery uh, you know going outside your marriage even with someone of the opposite sex and uh, so so we see that brought in there but at the end of that he says those who practice these things if these continue to be a practice in your life you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God and, and what I think he really means by that is that we we don't inherit the kingdom of God because someone who's actively engaged in, in those practices has not given over the kingship of their own body yet to, to Jesus. You know, that they haven't submitted that part of them to the kingdom of God. Uh, I read a really good book. I think it's called it's called Sins of the Body. It was, it's, it's an older book. I think it's from the 80s. It's a collection of essays, but it's different people. I remember one of the essays in there it's really struck me. It said that, that so many of us will surrender all these other areas of our body. But it's like our sexual practices... We hold on to it and it's like a cabinet that we keep it locked. Like God, you can have the rest of me, but but uh you, you can't have that. And I think that's part of why there's so much resistance uh to, to that idea and why people try to step around that to say, well, sexual ethics really aren't that important in order to follow Jesus. Um there's there's a lot of passages to say they very much are.
0: Yeah. I think we would be I think we would be surprised at I think some people would be surprised by the way that Jesus uh, dealt with sexuality. I think some people have this idea uh, about Christianity or about Jesus himself, that that Jesus didn't care about these, these issues. And I think that people would be surprised that in, in every way that the law lays out uh, about sexual morality, to your point, he he doesn't he doesn't erase those or relax those. In fact, he brings them I love the way you said he brings them to a point and, and it pierces every single one of us. And and how the the Jew the Jewish people of Jesus' day were trying to find loopholes in the rules in order to fulfill their sexual desires and still be lawful and and a lot of that revolved around uh, divorce and remarriage and so they had these sort of loopholes that they had created around Deuteronomy 24 and and saying well you know Moses commanded us to give a certificate of divorce so Apparently, it's okay for us to do that, but on what basis? And Jesus takes everything back to the garden, and he says, no, this was never God's intention for you to divorce and then go find another wife to fulfill your desires. God's intention was for you to be faithful to the wife of your youth. That That's what all the prophets said. That's what That has, was always God's will, is for men to be faithful to their wife. And in fact, when you read Deuteronomy 24 about the certificate of divorce, what the law speaks specifically prohibited was men divorcing their wife, and then she goes and finds a different husband because she needed protection, she needed someone to care for her, especially in that culture, and so she went and remarried. What it forbid was for that original husband to go and retake his wife and reclaim her as his own, and God says, no, that, that's an abomination. And so all of these things, to your original point, point back to the garden— And Jesus doesn't relax any of these things. He brings them to their logical conclusion and helps people to see that unless you're willing to—I love the way you put that—surrender your sexuality to the Lord, then you're really not being a disciple of Jesus. And when I think about the law and how that definition of sexual morality or sexual immorality or sexual ethics got carried over from the law to the first century church. I think often about uh, Acts chapter uh, 15, when the Jerusalem Council is deciding, what are we going to teach these Gentile believers that are coming into our family? What what are we going to impress on them that— even though we're not going to make you be circumcised and you're not going to be Jewish, you know what do we need to teach them to do in order to be faithful to God? And basically it boils down to idolatry and sexual ethics. <laughs> and they tell them to abstain from sexual immorality. Well, how would first century Jewish followers of Jesus define sexual immorality? Well, they would define it the same way the law defined it. So everything the law says is sexually immoral— and everything the the law says is sexually moral then the first century christians were impressing that upon the new converts to say as you come into this family here's here's what we expect of you and to to here's what we expect you to do sexually and what what is forbidden for you to do or what you need to abstain from and that would have been a radical change for most gentiles coming into the body of christ coming into this family of Jewish and Gentile believers, it would have been a radical change to say, okay, when you get married, it's for life and and that's where your sexuality needs to be practiced. So the mistress that you had before or the servant that you had before that you used to sleep with, like and going down to the idol temple and and being part of the orgies that are going on down there, all of that has to stop. And these were things that First century Christians used to practice Paul's pretty explicit about that in 1 Corinthians 6 that homosexual relationships and uh, adulterous relationships and uh, fornicating really all of these things were practiced by these gentiles who were coming into the church and and they impressed upon them that if you're going to be part of this Jesus movement if you're going to be a follower of Jesus and be part of the family of Abraham then you have to abstain from these kind of practices.
1: And I think in 1 Corinthians 6, a couple of the things that Paul has to emphasize there uh, is that, number one, your body now, if you're, if you're in Christ, your body is a member of the body of Christ. Okay, So yes. my body is part of a much bigger body. Uh, I need to understand that. Uh, so I, I, it's not just about what Caleb does with his body. It's what Caleb does with his body is what I'm doing with Christ's body. Uh, so so mm-hmm. that, that's, that's part of what he says. And then he also says my body is also a temple for God to dwell in, and in First Corinthians six, he says a temple for God's spirit. So it, there is a holy space where heaven and earth meet. Uh, that that concept is centered in my own body now, uh, and those are those are big ideas for the for the first century as motivation for uh, this is this is why what you do, becoming one flesh with someone, you better make sure that 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 one flesh relationship is sanctified, that it's holy, uh, or else you are. Taking a holy space and part of the body of Christ, and you're you are entering into unholy territory with that, Uh, and and that's that cannot continue to happen. And and you be expected to be part of that holy fellowship. Uh, So that is that's part of how he deals with that. There, I'd also like to say I think a lot of I think part of our problem is that uh, I think a lot of people when they talk about ethics in general, I, I think they they tend to confine ethics to avoiding actions which tangibly harm someone else, and so I think that's part of the resistance. Uh, because I I'll, I'll hear people say, "Well, what what I do in my bedroom is fine. It, it should be fine as long as I'm not harming someone else. So as long as I'm not, so it may be that someone may agree that uh, forcing a sexual act upon someone else, a non-consensual sex." Uh, that 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 is wrong. But beyond that, you know, why why should why should any of these these other things uh, be wrong? And and I would say that just talking about ethics as far as what tangibly harms someone else—that's that, an incomplete understanding of it. It's an incomplete understanding because c- it doesn't take into account number one, it doesn't take into account the harm to myself, which uh, which I cannot see. So just because I can't see, I don't see something as bad in the moment. Uh, wh- what if that's because I don't truly grasp what is good? Maybe I'm just, just eating crumbs a- and missing the true feast and I don't even realize that. Uh, so, so that's that's part of it. And we, all, we don't even realize all the different ways that we're being shaped by this consumer mentality of sex, just in harmful, addictive, objectifying ways. Uh, so I, I don't see the fullness of how it's harming me. I think that's part of the problem. The other thing is, that that when we step outside that Genesis two model, the harm to others is there in ways that that often we cannot see the, the full ramifications of what we're doing. I, I love you know you brought up Acts fifteen, we're talking about abstaining from sexual immorality as instruction to the to uh, the Gentile converts. First Thessalonians four is another passage that deals with that, and, and he says you know in in verses three through five of that chapter. God's will is for your holiness or your sanctification, uh, and that means abstaining from all forms of pornea, all forms of sexual immorality. So there's your umbrella term uh, that that he gives us. And he says also possess your vessel, possess your body in holiness and honor. But, but what gets me is verse 6 because he says and that no man transgress or defraud his brother in this matter. And, and the, the very fact that he would uh, you know, put that on the end there. Just goes to show, sexual sin is not just private sin. You, you know, I mean, every every time, every hour I spend viewing pornography, it's contributing to the demand for that business, which is recruiting people for those those videos that are shot, and and sometimes recruited in tangible, harmful ways uh, to those people. Um, if I go outside my marriage. And I, I sleep with another man's wife. I, I am not only harming myself and her, I'm, I'm bringing harm on her and her husband and her children and my wife and my children. You look at David and his sexual sin with Bathsheba and you look at how the text highlights all the ramifications that come about because of that of two families that are very much deal with the brokenness of what has happened in that situation. Uh, every time I, my eyes look upon a woman's body uh, in a sexual way and, and I'm objectifying her and they lock on, I, I become more dehumanizing of the next woman. Uh, and, and that contributes to just a society-wide problem of objectifying uh, humans. Uh, so there's often multiple generations that are affected by sexual sin in the Bible. Uh, so th- there there's a defrauding... Uh, and and hurting uh, transgressing people in ways that sometimes we we're not even ever going to fully realize. So that's that's why sexual ethics matter. There's harm that we just don't see,
0: yeah. And I think that's really I think that's really helpful in framing this conversation for a modern context, because it's it's difficult in, in the context we find ourselves in, but it's not any more difficult, I don't think, than it was in the first century or that it's been in any century uh, to have this conversation, because believers and unbelievers have a different framework, have a different worldview, have a different way of thinking about ethics. And to your point— um, different people have a different way of framing ethics and some people frame it as what doesn't do harm to someone well number 1 i think that it's a legitimate question to ask where did you get that ethic like right. what why do you assume that that's that's where you draw the line. Um, but I think even before that, just acknowledging that everybody has an ethic, and even as it pertains to sexuality, everybody has a sexual ethic. And so our neighbors, even our unbelieving neighbors, if our neighbor is an atheist or an agnostic or has whatever spiritual beliefs, they have a sexual ethic. Everybody has a sexual ethic. Everybody believes that some sexual behaviors are okay and even good and beautiful, and other sexual behaviors are wrong and should be abstained from. Everybody draws the line somewhere. And I think that sometimes we we both on the Christian side and on the non-Christian side, we assume that Christians are the only ones with a sexual ethic. Well, that's not that's just not true. And we're not we're not the only ones saying that certain sexual behaviors are wrong. Even atheists say that some sexual behaviors are wrong. The question is where do we draw the line? And some people draw the line at where where do they think that harm is being done? Because we all want to see what's best for humanity, and, and everybody thinks that their sexual ethic is best for humanity. And so I think that as we try to explain this to our unbelieving friends and family, that that are saying, well why are you Christians? You you're so prudish and you you think that all of these sexual behaviors are wrong and and why why do you care? And well because everybody has a sexual ethic. Everybody believes certain behaviors are right and certain behaviors are wrong, and we have a reason for believing that. We believe that Jesus is king. We believe that that Jesus is the one who shows us what's best for humanity. Now I don't think that we ought to force unbelievers to adopt our sexual ethic, and I think sometimes we end up trying to do that. I'm not surprised that my unbelieving neighbors don't adopt my sexual ethic, and I'm not angry at them for being unbelievers or for having a different sexual ethic. I believe that as a follower of Jesus, this is the best way for humanity to operate. I think it would be best for my neighbor (laughs) to adopt this sexual ethic, but I— I I have to be honest and say the only reason I adopt this sexual ethic isn't because I can naturally see that this is what's best for humanity. It's because I can't see what's best for humanity. I don't even know which of my desires are good desires, which of my desires are bad desires, which of my desires are going to— going to result in the best for myself and my family I have to listen to Jesus one story that that I think is really helpful is the story of Amnon and Tamar in 2nd Samuel 13 Amnon has a desire for his his half-sister, and he wants to sleep with her. And his desire for her is, is huge. He can't think about anything else. He thinks, if I sleep with her, everything is going to be great. Well, as soon as he does, she tries to plead with him, don't do this, and and he rapes her. And as soon as he does, the text says that he hates her, and, and it doesn't satisfy him the way that he thinks that it will. Sexual desire it has this tendency to lie to us. It makes huge promises. And it says, if you act on this desire, then all of your dreams are going to come true. There's going to be fireworks. There's going to be, it's just going to be wonderful. On the other side of this fulfillment is going to be all of these wonderful promises. And I think that it doesn't take human beings very long to figure out, that's very seldom the case, Um, and, and we really don't know what's best for us. And so just because a person has a certain sexual impulse or a certain sexual desire doesn't mean that acting upon that is going to bring true fulfillment. As followers of Jesus, we simply believe that following Jesus and listening to him is what brings true fulfillment, and it's not any any particular sexual act? It's following Jesus, and so we believe that following Jesus is best for humanity, and this is the sexual ethic that goes along with following Jesus.
1: Yes, uh, I, I love an expression that uh, you, you, you talk about how pe- people never find the fulfillment that they think they're going to find in it, and that goes along with the whole theme of the Book of Ecclesiastes. You know, the s- sexual yes. fulfillment is just one one of those many paths where we think this is the end all, be all. If only I had this, then I. You know, this is going to be it. And we find time and time again, every door we open, you know, ends up being an empty room in the end until we, we open up, fear God and keep his commandments. That this is the entirety of who we are. I, I love what Russell Moore uh, says, something to the effect of uh, the church needs to be a welcome home for the refugees of the sexual revolution. Those are the people who have realized that fulfillment is not there and they, they're looking for something else. And I think that that brings us back, you know, to the whole idea here of, of you know, we've talked a lot about sexual sin about how how broken we are and all of this. I think any topic that you look at biblically, we need to talk, we need to talk about our brokenness, why this is a broken issue in our fallen world and why that matters, uh, but also what God is doing to restore us, how God is, is working to heal us, and I, I'll take it back to First Corinthians six, right after he said all these things about. How you're not going to inherit the kingdom of God if you continue to practice these things because you haven't submitted the kingship of your body to Jesus. You're not part of the kingdom of God when you're doing that. But he says, such were some of you, as you mentioned, people who were practicing these things very actively, very deep in them. I'm sure many of them were. Uh, And yet they've been washed, they've been sanctified, they've been justified. Uh, They they, uh, have had that account of sin. They've had their name cleared of that, and they are now declared holy. Uh, and that's that's amazing, uh, that that really is. Um, and First Corinthians seven goes on and talks about that, you know, about how uh, you you can be you can be holy uh, in in your um, in your life from this point on, even in a relationship with with someone who's who's not a Christian, uh, because you've your body has been sanctified in Jesus. And so th- there's amazing transformative power uh, in the gospel too uh, for the, our sexual brokenness.
0: I think that's a great place to wrap this up, because I think that has to be part of any conversation on sexuality, because the Christian sexual ethic isn't just about what's wrong, what sexual behaviors are wrong. It's about the fact that we've all gone wrong, and it's God who sets us right. So I appreciate you bringing us back to that, about grace and forgiveness and redemption and how that has to be part of this conversation, but any conversation we have uh, with anyone about sexual ethics. So thank you, Caleb, for all your thoughts today. I really appreciate it, brother.
1: Appreciate you having me on.
0: Thanks, brother. We really hope that you enjoyed this episode of the Radically Christian Bible Study Podcast. Special thanks to Travis Pauly, as well as our McDermott Road Church family for helping to make this podcast possible. And special thanks to every one of you. We hope that you enjoyed this Bible study and that you'll join us next time. We love you. God loves you. And we hope that you have a wonderful day.